Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a special edition featuring highlights from BIO's 10th annual conference held in the Leon Levy Center for Biography in Midtown Manhattan. On May 18th, BIO founder James McGrath Morris received BIO's 2019 award recognizing significant achievement in biography. The awardee, affectionately called Jamie, was introduced by past BIO president Nigel Hamilton. All right, now, fellow biographers, we come to the big moment uh, where we give our annual prize to the most uh, deserving person in our biographical firmament. Uh, And this year, I am delighted that the choice by a special committee uh, is to honor our creator, Jamie McGrath Morris. He follows a number of very distinguished recipients of the prize, but uh, I want to explain a little bit of why I think this is such a great decision. Uh, Because I think of Jamie not only as as a friend, as a fellow biographer, but a biographer and entrepreneur. Uh, And now Jamie is, I hope, uh, going to tell us the actual story of how exactly he came to create and name our bio-organization. But I just want to say in advance how much I admire Jamie's energy and entrepreneurial spirit. And I say that because I too dreamed of starting a biographical organization or center for biography and the study of biography in Britain over 20 years ago, using a university college in London, Royal Holloway, and then De Montfort University in the Midlands. It failed, not only because of me, but because the notion of that center in Britain was very much a top-down idea. In fact, we got a huge government, what seemed a huge government, 100,000 pound grant to uh, do a feasibility study. And Jamie, bless him, he started the other way, from the ground up. And I really look forward to what he can tell us of the inside story. Before he does, though, let me just say how much I and others admire Jamie as a biographer. He's written four major biographies, The Rose Man of Sing Sing, a true tale of life, murder, and redemption in the age of yellow journalism. He's written Pulitzer, A Life in Print and Power. He's written Eye on the Struggle, 
Ethel Payne, first lady of the black press. And he's written ambulance drivers, Hemingway, Dos Passos, and a friendship made and lost in war. Of Roseman, the New York Times said, Chapin, the, the murderer, <laughs> was quite a character. And Mr. Morris describes him with verve and an eye for colorful detail that match the rip-roaring era he lived in. Mr. Morris writes compellingly of Chapin's fanatical efforts to beat the competition. The review also said that the author lacks psychological depth and historical sweep that would turn it into a heftier work. That was in 2003. Well, in 2010, Jamie took note of that New York Times review because Pulitzer really deserved the Pulitzer Prize. Just a terrific book with tremendous heft and uh, uh, historical sweep. You know, this immigrant to American shores who makes it into the world of American press, who creates the modern American press. So perhaps like many of us, but certainly uh, a terrific uh, example of how a biographer improves from his first essay into, uh, into the world of biography. I'll give you a quote. His biography is not hagiography. He see, and this was what I loved about that book. He sees Pulitzer in all his complexities and with a sense of nuance. Morris looks at the past through the lens of the present and finds curious parallels. That was uh, Jonah Raskin in the LA Times. About Eye on the Struggle, uh, about Ethel Payne, the New York Times called it a fine biography, a fast-paced, engrossing biography, weaving the details of Payne's personal and infinitely intriguing professional life against the backcloth of 20th century relations, the civil rights movement and Cold War anti-colonialism. And then, on top of all that, a work of prosography, the ambulance drivers. Uh, Douglas Preston has said of that, a tragic story, beautifully written, compulsively readable. And now he's working on yet another biography of Tony Hillerman. So, apparently a decade as a journalist, a decade uh, in magazine and the book business, a decade as a high school teacher, but most of all, a great biographer and the creator of our organization, unique in the world, Jamie McGrath Morris, the winner of this year's award for uh, all you've done for biography and for bio. Jamie, please. <laughs> Thank you, Nigel. Um, what's, more, what's most remarkable about Nigel's flattering introduction, uh, and I did notice it was handwritten, 
um, is because Nigel's third volume of the FDR books on World War II just came out. That's the one that was praised in the New York Times. So somehow between dealing with that and coming here, he was able to say some nice things about me. Thank you. For a guy who talks too much, um, I'm really without words when it comes to expressing what you have done by giving me this award and this moment. Um, but I have two personal things to pass on. It's made all the sweeter because my brother and sister are here. And especially for those of you in the audience who were the youngest, or in my case, the baby brother, uh, you'll understand the joy of being celebrated by one siblings who are down here in the front with me. But it also permits me, as a biographer, to, an opportunity to disprove an unfounded and scurrilous rumor that was started by Stacy Schiff many years ago. <laughs> when I interviewed her at the Washington meeting on the stage, she asked me a question. She said, is there such a person as, in her words, Mrs. Patty Morris? She'd never been seen at a bio conference before. And I was attempting to reply, and Stacy, being very wily, turned to Abby, Abby Santa Maria, who was in the audience, said, Abby, you had a fellowship at their house, and you spent several weeks. Did you ever see a Mrs. Patty Morris? Come to think of it, Abby said with a smile. No, I didn't. Well, today the rumor comes to an end. Let me introduce you to the love of my life for 38 years, Patty McGrath-Morris. By the way, Abby should also be congratulated. You may have heard that even despite her role in this rumor mongering, she's just received one of the five resident fellowships from the Leon Levy Center for Biography right here in this building. So I, without my glasses, congratulations to Abby. So I want to use my time with you trapped in this room to accomplish three things. I want to share with you not the entire Genesis story, but a good part of the Genesis story. There's a danger in that because one of the things you'll learn is it was a group effort. So I won't be able to name everybody because we will never get out of here if I do. So understand that every name I mention represents an army of people behind them. I want to discuss what I perceive as the challenges that we face as biographers and now some 10 years later and I want to propose ways, specific ways, three ways actually that bio could contribute to overcoming these challenges. Some of you know that the idea for bio actually came to me during a walk in 2008. I had been publishing the Biographer's Craft, a newsletter, for about three years and had about 1,700 people on the end of the line. So I was getting to know biographers quite well, uh, acquaintances as one might call them because I hadn't met them in person. And I was walking on a dirt road near our house in the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains above Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I got thinking about writer organizations. Now you see, over the past three years, I had been three decades, I've been an organizer for something called the National Writers Union, with the belief that we should be paid for our work. Washington Independent Writers, which was a very active group in Washington in ways some of the ways bio was, is, and I'd also served on a newspaper union negotiating team, which was a disaster. But the point was, I had this sense of, in my character, in my DNA, maybe of being a joiner and a mother hen. And those two things fit very well when you're dealing with writers. My friend, the writer David Morell, had recently launched something called the Thriller Writers Organization. So I went to the web, as we do, and checked and found out that even romance writers got together. Then again, of course, they're in a craft centered on togetherness, if you get my meaning. <laughs> 
So I went back and I published an open letter in an issue of TBC saying if there was support for the idea, we ought to get together. And I was inundated with emails. Um, many of the people in this room were the ones who wrote me and said it's a great idea. So David Nassau, who had just created the Levy Center here um, in, this, in this very building, offered us, offered us space in the building if we wanted to have a meeting. So you might want to think of this as our independence hall. This is where it took place. <laughs> Fifty of us gathered, and the discussion, like all biographers, was rather vigorous. The one I remember most is a discussion of whether or not we would let memoirists in. <laughs> the decision was no. But I'd like to pause now to ask folks who were part of that gathering then, 10 years, well, it was been 11 years ago, I guess, to stand so we can recognize part of the initial cadre. Now, you have to understand, these are really accomplished people. And I had just come in on the slow plane from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and having written to them about this. And they were amazingly trusting. They handed me the microphone and said, get talking. So what I did is I offered my services as a facilitator. And I made it clear that I would not remain in the leadership forever. There was a good reason for this. I'd spent time as a reporter in Washington, D.C., and one of the things I noticed about interest groups that are formed around an individual is they don't last. They never build the kind of support necessary to, uh, to endure. So in the early years, I agreed to do things like serve as chief bottle washer, executive director, president, board member. But what you see and why we live here today as we were alive today is we I was replaced rapidly by a cadre of excellent leaders who've succeededly shepherded bio to the success that it is now. And they ought to be recognized as well. So I'm going to ask the following former presidents, Debbie Applegate, Nigel, Brian J. Jones, Will Swift, and our current president, Kathy Curtis, to please stand so you can recognize the work they've done to make this organization possible. And in no way to diminish their work, but if you look at the program, that's what makes me smile. It's a whole half a page in small type, like Sports Agate, of people who sustain this organization, who do all the work. I mean, Michael Bergen, who's over here in the corner, who's our TBC editor. Lori, who I don't have my glasses on. If she's not in the audience, you've seen her coming in. These folks join us and all of these volunteers to make this organization possible. Um, it is sustained by people, not by a person. So we had that meeting in New York City, and we were off and running, and I received an urgent email from Nigel. Well, more like an order. Come to Boston to discuss the idea of holding an annual conference. I didn't know what I'd gotten myself into. The train I took was delayed forever. Any of you who have ridden the train between here and Boston probably think that's a redundancy to say it was delayed. But anyway, I arrived at the University of Massachusetts, which if you know, I've been to the conference there, is on the water. It's right next door to the JFK Library, where at that point they were still whispering about Nigel's JFK Reckless Youth, which had been published in 1992. Are you allowed in there, by the way? No. Nothing. Yeah. So in the cafeteria, Nigel introduced me to Ray Shepard. And with pens and papers, and this is where you have to be careful, do not trust memoirs as a source. 
I would like to say we sat down with paper napkins and plotted the whole thing out. Um, I suspect there's no truth to that. I think we actually had pens and papers, but it sounded better. Anyway, we came up with the idea of the conference, the bio prize, and began recruiting volunteers, just the three of us. And the following first spring, the first ever bio conference was held. Interim President Debbie Applegate gave the welcoming address. Gene Strauss became the first bio award winner, and we were off and running. We had a board. Nigel assumed the presidency, and plans were made for the 2011 conference in Washington. In fact, we had a sign that said, see you next year in Washington. That's how confident we were. We had no idea if the budget would balance. I mean, it was just, we had to set up the website, people, you know, press credit cards. Um, we had quite a tussle with the university for a little while about some costs, but we survived. But I remember standing at the back of the hall, and I called Patty shortly after that, watching Strauss. She was on two jumbo screens. Everybody in the audience was absorbed by what she was saying, and I realized that moment that bio was real. We had collectively done it. So I'd like those who attended the first bio conference in Boston in 2010 to stand and be recognized. Isn't that cool? We had a smaller group, a larger group, and a larger group. And, that, and if I asked you to, you know, to stand for each, each session, you'd see that it keeps growing. Well, I think we pulled it off not because of me, but because of the volunteers who joined the cause. And the most exemplary of these folks was Ray Shepard. He produced the first program. He troubleshot everything when we called from places and said, what about this? And he gathered us up all a few days before the conference to organize the registration and nail down the final details. Ray, are you in here somewhere, I hope? Well, he's probably knew I was going to flatter him, so let me go on. Following the conference, the board created something called the Ray Shepard Award. It's life membership given to a person whose volunteer words work exceeded all possible expectations. Ray set such a high uh, standard that it's only a few times we've been able to give out this award. But equally interesting, this is so typical of bio members, right after being freed of all his responsibilities, he went on to write and publish Now or Never, 54th Massachusetts Infantry War to End Slavery, which the New York Public Library and Kirkus put on their best books for kids and teens lists. And when I saw him, I did the same thing we do to each other, so what are you working on now? And he's got another book in the works. Importantly, what was at the heart, I've been looking back because I knew you were giving this prize and wanted to know about our origins, and I tried to figure out what it was that I thought captured bio and made it different from other organizations. Not better, but different. What I realized is, is that we adopted a philosophy that's much like Ezra Cornell when he created Cornell University, and if you paraphrase him and switch some of the words around, we got bio would be a place and a group where any person could find instruction on any part of the art and craft of biography. That's what sets us apart. The conference for its first years had this cute name called the Complete Biographer, spelled in the old English way. It was a, an homage to Isaac Walton's The Complete Angler. And if any of you fish, you know that book, even though it's hundreds of years old now, still is a guide to the art and craft of fishing. Our Complete Biographer was the same notion. Bio's mission, the name was a reinforcement of this idea that biographers help each other as well as aspiring writers, not just those with contracts. And I remember in Washington, Bob Caro, when he got his prize, said that he, he and Ina had wished there'd been a bio around when he started. I don't think he needs us now. <laughs> but that's the point. 
bio as a membership organization has the power to lift writers up. Every time I come to these conferences or every time I meet another bio member, they tell me something that bio has done for them. Bio is a group of people. It's all of us helping each other, and that's what makes us unique. That's what makes us different. That's what gives us our strength. At one of the early conferences, Chip Bishop found his first agent an essential instruction on becoming a biographer. He told me that coming to the conference was what brought his biography writing to life and made possible the publication of The Lion and Journalist, The Unlikely Friendship of Theodore Roosevelt and Joseph Buckland Bishop, and subsequent books. And again, that's the magic of a membership organization dedicated to the success of each and every member. Chip passed away several years ago, and his memory is now preserved by the Chip Bishop Fellowship that provides funds for a writer to attend the conference. And this year, as you know, the fellowship is awarded to Heidi Feldman, who's working on a biography of Victoria Santa Cruz. That money does not come from the Ford Foundation. It comes from each of us, each of us trying to help another writer. A similar story could be told, and you heard about Hazel Rowley and the Hazel Rowley Prize. She was already a successful biographer. In a sense, she certainly didn't, didn't need us, but she became enamored with the idea of us coming together, and particularly young and new, or it doesn't have to be young, but young in the field, aspiring writers. And so the fact that we've named this award uh, for her really reflects her spirit. And as you heard, Holly Van Leeuwen, the uh, inaugural winner, has a book coming out. Again, that's the magic of a membership organization dedicated to each and every of its members. These grants, along with the Robert Caro and Ina Caro travel grant, represent the sense of helping each other. Steve Paul, a retired journalist from Kansas City, gained invaluable help from a member, Justin Martin, at one of the coaching sessions that Will Swift started. This one was at the Richmond Conference. Then listening to T.J. Stiles and Annette Gordon-Reed in a conversation, he had an epiphany that caused him, yeah, we've all done this, oh my God, I've got to change the book. It ran, ran back, he went back to, uh, to Martin, he was writing a book about Hemingway. And Martin said, yeah, that's a good idea. And then he shared his idea with an editor from the Chicago Review Press. Two weeks later, she bought the book. That's the magic of a membership organization dedicated to the success of its members. Heather Lee found the same kind of support from us. The bio community, she says, felt inclusive, not exclusive from the start. Will Swift coached her. Kate Burford provided encouragement. Mark Leapson provided Vietnam advice. Brian J. Jones came up with marketing ideas. And Nigel clued Heather into the weird ways that British go about publishing. Bio has been a crucial part of my success in this industry, Heather told me. Whenever I have an issue or a problem with the biz, I have many folks to go to for help and resources. Heather is not with us today. She's busy. Her new book, The League of Wives, The Untold Story of the Women Who um, Took on the U.S. Government to Bring Home Their Husbands, Bring Their Husbands Home, has put her on the road. And meanwhile, Fox 2000 Studio and Reese Witherspoon preemptively acquired the rights. Again, that's the magic of a membership organization built on the success of each of its members. I could keep you here all day telling these stories. Every one of you has a bio story like that. And every time I meet a bio member, they share a story of what the organization has done for them. And as bio matures, I want to urge us not to lose sight of this mission. Will Swift's mentoring program is exactly the kind of innovation that we need to keep going, where we, those of us have something to share with another. Like the lunch today, I was astounded at the research table. Not only did I share some of my weird ideas, but immediately the whole table came alive with really interesting ideas on how to organize your research. It's not a top-down discussion. Tables are flat. 
except if you're six foot two, you might tower a little bit over others, but the point is, it's a, it's a discussion as opposed to a lesson. But bio members have done a lot more than just help each other. They've boosted biography by increasing our visibility with the industry. We campaigned to try to persuade the Pulitzer Prize to separate biography from autobiography. We've fought for recognition of our craft. We've talked to bookstores about the idea that there could be different shelves for biography, memoirs, and autobiographies. We've done all kinds of things, including rewarding editors who are the unsung heroes of this craft to help them through the Editorial Excellence Prize that was launched so that we draw attention to their kind of work that they do that's so critical to us. I was in here for the panel earlier, and you know, normally what do we do around the, the uh, last drink of the day? We complain about our editors and agents. Sorry if any of you are in here, but that happens. And Caroline and others were telling stories about the books they turned in. Caroline got a call from her editor. She said, do you want the good news and the bad news? The good news was the middle's pretty good. But she admitted that through the work with the editor, it made it the book it is today. And those editors don't get the kind of credit, but thanks to Will Swift's prize, they do now. Another visible animating example, the animating spirit of Bio as a membership organization, of course, is the launch of the Plutarch sorry, prize. That we, it really, Brian, when you came up with this, were you trying to get us to say Pulitzer? <laughs> Plutarch Prize. Brian J. Jones came up with the idea that Bio could have an award like that of the Oscars, where members decide who gets the prize. The Plutarch became the world's only literary award given to biography by biographers. And this again involved a cast of many. Hans Renders, who's our fellow who comes from Amsterdam every year, who's somewhere in this audience. And you used to have the prize for coming the furthest, but I met somebody who came from Sydney today. But again, that's the international aspect of our volunteership that makes these things possible. And members picked well. You saw who we picked today. The first six years of the prize, members selected Caroline Frazier, Ruth Franklin, Rosemary Sullivan, Hermione Lee, Linda Lebel, and Bob Caro. Now, I'm going to take 3.6 seconds just to tell you that I would regret not having a chance to share with you just one concern about the prize. And change is good, but it's not always the right thing. There's a plan now to have a selection of the final winner by a committee. And I think the committee would do an excellent job, but I want the membership to consider the fact that this has been a membership vote. And so I think you should participate in the debate on whether you want to retain it as a membership vote or as a committee. Um, and that's just for you to do. I'm writing a letter about it, but that's the end of my political speech. Back to my talk. <laughs> so these are just a few examples of the good things that have come from BIOS supporting and engaging membership by coming together online and in person. We're playing a critical role for the future of biography. We've done it for a decade successfully. There are endless books out there that have bio as an acknowledgement, and by that they mean the 400 members who've helped them. We have made a difference, and an enormous difference as a group. But I want to talk now about the future and the dangers I see that are coming up. North of where Patty and I live in New Mexico is the town of Chimayo, a classic Spanish colonial settlement that remains just almost untouched as it was a century, centuries ago. And if you go there, you can buy exquisite wool weavings from a fellow named Irving Trujillo, who's a seventh generation weaver who's taught his craft to his daughter. Traditional weaving like the kind he does endures because his family and other families in that town have passed on and had the energy to train the next generation. I want you to think of bio in that way. It's like the weaving shops in Chimayo where care is taken to provide instruction and support so the loom does not go silent. So in our case, the pen does not cease to move across the page. 
Our conference, our newsletter, and our professional camaraderie serve to pass on the craft to the next generation. It's thrilling to meet some of these folks in the lunchroom who are starting their first book and are here to get help from us. Among our younger members may be the next Samuel Johnson, Robert Caro, Arnold Rampersand, Caroline Frazier. You get the point. They're out there. But there's something else about Trujillo's story that we should pay attention to. It serves as a different reminder. Irving likes to tell visitors, particularly those who don't know New Mexico history, that his ancestors were citizens of Spain, citizens of Mexico, and that he's a citizen of the United States. In of itself, it's not that remarkable until he adds the final line, none of us ever moved. It's the border that moved. And I mention that because the Trujillos not only pass on to the craft of the next generation, but they've had to adapt to changes that were not of their making. Tastes change, borders move, and yet the Trujillo family endures. Biography and biographers need to adapt to the changes that were not of our making. We can't necessarily fight against them. We're now in an age where the necessity of biography is greatly diminished. Years ago, readers would simply buy a biography, sight unseen, because they wanted the information on their shelf in a readily accessible area, way to retrieve it. The prevalence of easily accessible biographical information about almost any figure, think in this case Wikipedia, has removed this imperative of purchase. That changes the ability of us to sell our biographies. Because of this, the quality of writing has become paramount. No longer can a resuscitation of facts, a long chapter on ancestors, what we call the begatting chapter, and a string of recollections make for much of a biography. The art and craft of biography is now what sustains our genre. It's what we have to focus on. Bio should consider more about providing more instruction and support for storytelling. And one of the opportunities to form a greater alliance with the Mayborn Conference in Texas, which is the nation's leading center for narrative nonfiction. I will see some of your faces there, but we should do more and doing more of that between our two groups. We also need to think forward and include film and audio as equal partners in our craft. Think of the film work done by members Billy Tuma on the audio, worker by Son audio work by Sonia Williams or David Dunaway. Some of these are original film or audio works of merit, just like what we do in print. But because they're in a more ephemeral nature, we don't think of them in the same way. They need to be full and equal partners to our work. The choice of a medium should not be a barrier separating print biographers from film or audio creators. And this is especially true if you've been keeping up with the marketplace. Audible now is acquiring original material, meaning things that were never going to come out in print, uh, coming out in audible format. Next year, we should be on the ground floor by training our members and having audible editors here to look at what the world of biography can offer. Um, it's an opportunity that we'd be a make, make a mistake to miss out on. Then we should address what is a deeply troubling problem of our craft in what one hopes is the age of increasing class, race, and sexual equality. The marketplace is a terribly cruel arbiter of who merits a biography, and it reflects our worst biases. When I wrote a biography of the black female journalist Ethel Payne, I was asked on more than one occasion why I was writing a book for black readers. But when I wrote Pulitzer, no one asked me why I was writing a book for Hungarian Jews. <laughs> and I'll give you one anecdote. Um, the New York Times not only reviewed that book, Ethel Payne, twice, but I was on NPR, and I started getting tweets from around the country. People were reporting where they were finding the book. They were finding it on the black interest shelf, not on the front shelf. 
And those are the kinds of industry things we need to address. At the, the session I went this morning, we were complaining about the prominence of young white males in marketing. Um, but it isn't they alone. They tap into BookScan and look at figures. And the figures for certain types of books are low, and it keeps, it's like the chicken and egg. It keeps doing the same thing. So we need to figure out ways to permit these, these kinds of books to get greater show. It hurts us all as a group that they don't. Claire Tomlin, who was a 2016 Bio Award, a record publishing her first book in 1976, a biography of Mary Wollenstonecraft, who I always get nervous trying to pronounce her name. Her publisher, George Weidenfeld, told her that the only biographies that sold were those of famous people. Now, I think this is far less true today, but it still remains a constant, if you look at it, that editors will check publishers' lunch, that editors will eagerly commission yet another biography of George Washington, Lincoln, either of the Roosevelts, rather than a biography of someone we don't know but ought to know. And the editors, I don't want to blame, they're not necessarily at fault. Without sales, there is no job. But there must be some solution to permit the lives and voices of the lesser known to have their day on the bookshelf. And that's something where we together may be able to make a difference. And this issue has much broader and profound implications than book sales. And it's more than our personal writing ambitions. Biography has this trait of fostering a leader-centric view of history. Publishers want books, and they're dying for this subtitle to say something like, how he or she changed America forever. And in this manner, wars are won by generals, economic crises solved by presidents, and industries built by moguls. So think of the first example. The success of the generals whose books we read also depends on the actions of others. To put it simply, that others would die for their orders. A truer account of war lies not behind the line of combat where our subject is safely found, but the story of the lives and men and women on the battlefield itself. In turn, this elevation of leaders creates historically inaccurate expectations. After a spate of Martin Luther King biographies, Diane Nash, who was a veteran in the Civil Rights Movement, observed, if people think that it was Martin Luther King's movement, then today they, young people, are more likely to say, gosh, I wish we had a Martin Luther King to lead us. If people knew how the movement started, then the question they would ask themselves is, what can I do? So our craft has this um, ability to almost disempower people because of the nature of our leader-centric view. Bio needs to find a way to support and foster works of those whose actions, rather than a fame, merit a biography. And third, and it's almost conversely, it's become a hostile world for unauthorized biographies of powerful figures. And the current attack on the press is an attack on our work. Don't make any mistake about it. False news is an attack on biography. Kitty Kelly presciently wrote about this nine years ago in her American Scholar piece. She pointed out that without the price of power, Kissinger in the White House by Seymour Hersh, we would never have learned some of the things about the man who orchestrated the secret bombing of Cambodia. She recounts how Kai's subject, Kai Bird's subject, John McCloy, refused to cooperate and even published a letter to the editor in the New York Times. Undaunted, Bird continued on his work. She writes, these unauthorized biographers did not bend a knee to authority. Believing in the public's right to know, they presented their truths without apology, and in doing so raised the hackles of their powerful subjects accustomed to uh, deference. And in The New Yorker, which may surprise you of all places, Kelly has a piece this week. She writes about the reparation debate in Georgetown University. And in the article, Richard Cellini, one of the founders of the Georgetown Memory Project, says, 
and reminds us, history only answers the questions we ask. And the same is true about biography and attempts to repress unauthorized works like, is like limiting the questions we may ask of those folks in power. We must build a rampart against the growing hostility to all forms of reporting, be it the short form in newspapers or the long form in biography. And one way for, this to, for bio to accomplish this, now as we celebrate our 10th year, is to consider creating a code of ethics that would make it to clear to readers the high standards to which we hold ourselves. A code of ethics, such an idea would hold a series of concepts, and I hope we're gonna take this up as a serious offering from my talk. Transparency. Readers should be able to easily determine a biographer's relationship with the subject or the person or persons who control the rights to the material being used. The terms by which a biographer gained access to the source material must be revealed in the book itself. Any of you know, if you've dealt with either a living subject or a recently departed subject, what a treacherous water this is. Justin Kaplan, when asked by Meryl Sechrist what to do on the book she was about to write, he said, first shoot the widow. <laughs> um, and every day I talk to people, I ran into this writing the ambulance drivers with the Hemingway estate. They're very tricky shoals to navigate. So I think a code of ethics would include an obligation that somewhere in a book we explain the terms by which we got to this material so that the reader can determine how we wrote the book. The rights of the subject this is something we overlook all the time. There should be a code of ethics and guidance on how the subject expects to be treated. I'm writing a book that involves folks that don't tend to be in the media much. These are Navajos. And part of my job as an ethical writer is to explain to them that the comments they make to me could end up in a book and what the implications are. They are private folks. Public figures we don't need to give such deference to. They're well-trained. So a code of ethics should explain how a subject should be treated. And this could also consider something very risky that people may um, raise their hackles at. But it's the idea that perhaps our subjects should have a right to share in the profit, the book sales, and a recognition of their right to control some of the information about them. And you know many of the famous cases where a book suddenly became a bestseller about a lesser-known people uh, or group of people. And it was only after the fact that anyone gave consideration to their sharing. Now, most of us earn so little that uh, this idea may become a joke, thinking you're $10 of royalty, let's see, we'll divide it by this way and that way. But still, I think it's a consideration that should be given as we approach each biography with a subject, particularly if we're working on somebody who is um, one of the hidden figures of life. Sourcing. Code of ethics should include that biographers must clearly identify the source of information so readers can make a determination to its reliability. As in journalism, we should think of anonymous sources as being a limited use, perhaps only to those who face retribution or have information that can't be obtained elsewhere. And the biographer has an obligation to explain why that anonymity was granted in the first place. Finally, a code of ethics, I think, should include an obligation. Biographer may not plagiarize or otherwise use material without proper attribution. Endeavor to be accurate and check facts, particularly now that the onus of fact checking rests with us and not with publishing houses since they don't seem to do it anymore. And biographer's pledge to make fairness a guiding principle, to maintain his or her integrity in reviewing a colleague's work, and as well protect and defend a colleague and our collective right to do our work. There are many other things I would include, but what I'm hoping by bringing this here as part of this speech is that you guys will give some thought 
to the idea in the coming year of perhaps creating, as we did, a code of behavior, which we know that we have, a code of ethics for us as a tool for our work, which would also give us a defense against the hostility we face out there. So I've shared a bit of our history and highlighted these challenges we face in the second decade. And please don't think uh, these are supposed to be a glum ending. Because when all is said and done, our craft and our love for it will surmount any problem. All of us know that, particularly those of us who toiled for years on something that we were the only believers in, and yet we kept going. In the end, think about it, we really are fortunate writers. We share a common bond with all genres. We use techniques of fiction to create our narrative accounts and build upon it scrupulous historic, built upon scrupulous historical research. We are literature's portrait artists. Our colleagues, the historians, are the landscape painters. Their work is no more legitimate than ours, and ours no less valuable. Our canvases may be different, but we both seek truth, truth about our past. In the end, I'm touched by being honored this award, but if the truth were to be told about us, it is you who should be championed. I may have had the idea that day on a walk to create bio, but you gave it life, and now I ask you to make sure you sustain it. Thank you. That was bio founder and author James McGrath Mars accepting BIO's 2019 Biographers Award and delivering an inspiring address at BIO's annual conference held on May 18th at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. We'll feature more highlights from BIO's 2019 conference next week. You can read more about BIO on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>